What do Christians pray for in the sixth petition? The answer is this. In the sixth petition, which is, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, Christians pray that God would either keep them from being tempted to sin or support and deliver them when they are tempted. My first question is, what is it to be tempted to sin? We're praying, lead me not into temptation. Well, what is temptation that's referred to in this petition? The short answer is to be enticed to do evil, to be attracted or lured, persuaded by various means to transgress or fall short of the law of God. Remember, sin is any transgression or falling short of the law of God. Sin is about law. It's the breaking of it. It's the missing the mark. And so, temptation is a luring into doing that. It's to be induced to sin against God. Now, in the Bible, there are two words, one in the Old Testament and one in the New, that are predominantly used to describe this word that we say temptation or tempt. Its basic meaning is to prove or try someone or something. In other words, to, to put someone or something under trial and see how they do. So in the Old Testament, metal or armor is said to be tested or tried. In Genesis 22, that's the story of Abraham being commanded by God to sacrifice Isaac. In Genesis 22, God tries, he tests Abraham when he commands him to sacrifice his son. Now, those are positive uses of this word. The word can have a positive connotation to, to try, to test, or it can have a negative connotation, which we then translate the word as tempt. And the difference is, what's the purpose behind the action? What's the goal involved in it? So when Satan deceived Eve to sin, we translate it deceived or tempted, not tested, because he had a particular evil motive in doing that. When men in the Bible wickedly challenge God and basically say, you know, prove yourself or prove it, the same word is done. It's always a grievous sin to make God prove himself. This is what Israel did in the wilderness by murmuring against God and urging him to prove himself. They did that out of their unbelief. They tested God. They tempted God. In Exodus 17, it says they put the Lord to the test. And so Moses called that place Masa, which translates as a tempting so we see the two senses or ways in which this word can be used. 
The two differ as to their motive or goal. One is a trying for the purpose of getting someone to sin. That's tempting. The other is trying to show or work a spiritual good work for or in a person. That's testing. Tempting, testing. And because we ordinarily know from the context which is going on, in our English Bibles, it's usually clearly translated one or the other. Now the devil always tempts for sin for the purpose of destruction. His goal is evil. His goal is to disprove the person he's tempting. God, on the other hand, always tests to approve. Perhaps to reprove. Perhaps to improve. But always to approve. God's goal is always positive. Each trying situation in life, and if, if you don't understand this yet, this little truth from the Word of God will really help you. <laughs> what I'm about to tell you is there aren't many things in this life much more practical than this. Every test or temptation that comes to you in life is both. <laughs> the devil, the world, the flesh are in it and God is in it. When temptation comes to you, the devil, the world, and the flesh are not far off, and neither is God. But his purpose is not to tempt you to sin. His purpose is to do you good. The devil's purpose, the world's purpose, your remaining corruption's purpose, is to never do you good. It's to get you to sin. It's to pull you into more misery. But every one of the tests of life, every one of the trials of life, both of those things are going on. Every trial, every trying situation in life is both a tempting and a testing. We see this in James 1 verses 2 and 12 through 15. For the sake of time, look at that this afternoon, brothers and sisters. There, the same word is translated trial when it's coming from God. And yet, in the exact same scenario or situation, it's translated temptation because our own lusts would misuse that situation to sin. Right? There are many well-known examples in the Bible. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. The test came. What was God's purpose in the test? For them to pass it so that they would be established forever in a greater righteousness than they had. What was the devil's purpose in that test? For them to sin and to damn all mankind. Those were the goals of the two spiritual beings, if you will, who were there. Think about Job. Job shows God's power to keep the life of a believer safe in himself as opposed to bringing such a sinful attitude in him that he would curse God. 
That was the devil's goal, to get him to curse God. That wasn't God's goal. Or think about Christ. Christ was tested by God. He was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. It's one and the same event. Satan, his goal was to, again, doom all men. God's goal in the test of Jesus was for him to earn the righteousness necessary for the salvation of men. One's a test, one's a trial. It's the same event. So, when we are talking about to God, lead us not into temptation. Is this an opportunity from God? Yes. To show our obedience to his will. Is this an opportunity the devil would use for us to fall? Yes. So, that's what it is to be tempted to sin and a practical understanding of, of the events that come in our lives and how to think about them as a Christian. Right? This is part of the renewing of our minds that unless we think about these things rightly, we're not going to react or act rightly in the situation. I might add that especially as we're in the body today, and this will become more obvious a little bit later, but understand that when a test comes to one of us, it does come to all of us. Some of us perhaps more indirectly than others, but some of us very, very directly. If we smash our thumb with a hammer, it's not just our thumb that hurts, right? I mean, we hop around, we're screaming, we're, our brain's on fire. It's not... And the thumb doesn't fight this problem alone. It would be inappropriate for the other thumb to say, well, just cut that thumb off. We don't need that thumb. He's causing us a lot of trouble. Just get rid of him. Right? We've got a thumb. You don't really need two. Right? The leg goes, I've told you for years and years, we don't need that whole hand, let alone that thumb. Have you ever seen this guy try to walk on his hands? He's terrible. You've got feet. You don't need the thumb. We need each other. We're placed together purposely in the body. We are inextricably bound together in Jesus Christ and in practical ways by our covenant and our life together. And it's important to recognize that every time one of you or I are tested or tried, some of you or all of us are engaged in that. You might say, well, I, I didn't commit that sin or... Or I'm not facing that temptation. Oh, yeah, but, but there's a role you're supposed to play. And the question is, are you going to pass your part of the test? Or is the fact that you despise this person for their sin? Or you go, oh, here they are again with that weakness. Why can't they get over that? You see, you're being tested too. And you must not fail. God has a good purpose in that test. The devil has a miserable purpose for that test. You must pass it along with your brother or sister. Question two. From where does temptation come? Short answer is, of course, from the devil, the world, and the flesh. 
these are rightly known in the history of Christendom as our three great enemies. These are the Christians' great enemies. <laughs> Let's talk just for a minute about the devil. He is called in the Bible a number of names, but one of them is the tempter. That's how central he is to our sin, our sinning. He's called this in Matthew 4.3 and 1 Thessalonians 3.5. And his great work is to incite people to sin, to tempt them. He does this in a variety of cunning and ruthless ways. In 1 Corinthians 7.5, Paul explicitly warns married couples not to stay apart for very long at all. Why? Because Satan tempts them in that situation. He does this through our lack of self-control, so it's related to our own remaining weakness or sin, but it's still the devil. Paul's thorn in the flesh, to give another example, which is what? A trial from God, his father? Yes is also called a messenger from Satan. In other words, it's an occasion of tempting. In 1 Peter 5.8, the devil is called our enemy who prowls around looking for someone to devour. Obviously, that's a spiritual analogy. He wants to disprove and discredit and destroy Christians through temptation to sin. Now, probably in that particular context through the use of suffering and persecution, but he has a myriad of methods. Similarly, in 1 Thessalonians 3.5, he is called the tempter who tempts Christians. He is rightly called the ultimate source of all desire and action contrary to the holy love of God. So one of the places temptation comes from is the devil. He is the tempter. Temptation also comes from the world. Now by world, we don't mean God's pristine creation. We mean the world as fallen. The universe under sin and its hostility to God. In that sense, it is the kingdom of the devil, according to the New Testament. And it includes every anti-God system of thought and life and all the people who are against God. Worldly sinners will often tempt you to do evil. Sometimes they will do that very directly, very bluntly. You're away from home. You're deployed out here. Your wife's not around. Come down to the club with me. Let's get drunk together. Let's forget this. Let's on and on those things go. There are examples in the, in the Bible. Think about Proverbs 7. There it describes the temptations of the adulteress, the wayward wife with seductive words. See, there's a, there's a temptress. Or men in Proverbs 1.10 who entice to kill and steal. They're tempters. 
Now we've just said that sometimes this is very overt. People just say, hey, come, let's come sin together. Come on. I think probably more often they tempt you and they, they aren't purposely doing that. They're not even aware that that's what they're doing. So messed up, so disoriented, so deceived are they in understanding what's right and wrong and what's good for you and what's miserable that in fact they call you to do things that are very, very bad for you, that are sin. And so, you know, at that point, they're really just being the devil's unwitting dupes. They're still your enemy. But more than the persons under the control of the evil one, the world is what John calls the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. As one translation puts it, everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boastings about what he has and has done, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And so in 1 Timothy 6.9, we aren't surprised to read that people who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Why? Because riches are in and of themselves evil? No. No, but because the world perverts it into that. We're surrounded by a fallen world, a system opposed to God. And it is an ongoing temptation to us just by its very existence. It has pull and power on us. Why? Because it corresponds to the yet remaining corruption that's in our souls. The world in this sense is a bit like gravity. It's always there. It's always tugging. It's always pulling us, not up to heaven, but down. This is exemplified in Pilgrim's Progress in the place called Vanity Fair. What are they doing? Well, they're just eating. They're just drinking. They're just living life. They're just finding pleasure. You know, a generation ago, the obvious equivalent to that was the mall. Those don't seem to exist much anymore. So that would be a bad uh, illustration. But most of you are old enough to remember what those were. It often is a place of sensuality, of pride, of boasting, of lust. And this is why Christ warns his followers in Luke 21, 34, and 36. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, with drunkenness, with the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you unexpectedly like a trap. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that's about to happen so that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Well, the third enemy is the flesh. And that's human nature deprived of the Spirit of God and dominated by sin. It's the unsanctified and unspiritual portion of our humanity. Now, in unbelievers... That's their whole natures. In believers, it's our remaining corruption because we're no longer totally depraved. The Holy Spirit has cleansed us and has li lives in us and has begun to sanctify us. 
James 1.14, though, vividly describes us as our own worst enemy when it comes to temptation and sin. Each one is tempted when, he says, by his, what, own evil desire. He's dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, what does it do? It gives birth to sin. We know this can still happen even to Christians. Because we've all read Romans 7 and we understand the wrestling between what we want to do and know we ought to do and yet don't want to do and don't do. So these are the three tempters. These are the three enemies of the Christian, the devil, the world, and the flesh. And by themselves or together, they assault us with temptations. And what we're doing in this prayer is asking God to deliver us from such things, to keep us from temptations. So we must be alert to these things and pray against being led into temptation through them. Question three, does God tempt anyone to sin? Never. <laughs> I'm delighted to see your shaking heads. Never. Yeah, a mere no doesn't seem to adequately express God's detestation of sin. God never tempts anyone to sin. He never entices men to evil. In other words, it is never his purpose to entice to sin. James 1.13 is very clear. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God never instigates or solicits men to sin. He's three times holy, and, to, and it is impossible for him to tempt us to sin. He's the father of light, and he lives in light. However, and we must say this to do justice to the balance of Scripture, this most wise, righteous, and gracious God, as the confession, several confessions say, for various holy and just ends, may so order things that we may be assaulted, foiled for a time, and even led captive by temptations. God does ordain for us to be tempted sometimes. He doesn't tempt us, but he does ordain that his people be tempted. We see examples of this assault without success on the part of the devil. Think about Jesus again in the wilderness. Matthew 4.1, a challenging verse perhaps for some of you. It says this, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. See, there's the balance of truth. God isn't tempting Christ. It is not his goal for him to sin. But he has not only ordained for this to come to pass, he has actually sent the Holy Spirit to lead Jesus into the wilderness so that he can be tempted by the devil. God's purpose is to prove Jesus Christ. And of course, he will pass this test with flying colors. Amen. Going into the desert isn't a human mistake that Jesus made. 
No, he was led there by the Holy Spirit. God knows that this will be an opportunity for tempting, yes, but for proving. Now, the devil's purpose is clear. He's trying to tempt Christ to sin so that he'll fail in his messianic mission. But the second Adam in the desert did what the first Adam in the garden didn't do. He fully obeyed God. And so good came to him and everyone represented by him. Part of the righteousness that makes up a robe that you and I wear in the presence of God was weaved in those 40 days in the wilderness. Why? Because the Holy Spirit led Jesus Christ into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and he passed. Other mere humans have been tested in a similar way. Again, think of Abraham, ordered by God to put Isaac to death. How difficult to test. Which means what? How strong a temptation. Wow. <laughs> That's what that means. The point is, though, that God ordered the test. He allowed the temptation to come. Now, because of our own weakness, because of our own remaining corruption, we pray that God would not bring us into such situations. It's right to say, I don't want to... I don't want to be found there. I don't think I have the faith of Abraham. I, I, I fear for myself. Please keep me from this hour of temptation. It's right to pray that. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. But just recognize that sometimes God will, in wisdom, in holiness, say, I'm answering your prayer by saying no. I'm going to prove you. You're going to be tested by the devil. So we do pray that God would bring us not into such situations. And, and we never demand anything unilaterally of God, do we? We're making requests. We're really every prayer, if not overtly, should at least tacitly include, but not my will, but yours, right? I mean, keep me from temptation, but this is exactly what Jesus prayed in the garden. Oh, please let this cup pass from me. Do I really have to die this way? But not my will, your will be done. Right? In other words, keep me from this temptation. But you know best. You know best. We have a responsibility not just to pray about this, but to follow Christ's admonition, which is to watch and pray so that we don't fall into temptation. To watch simply means to actively be on guard. Brothers and sisters, remember the value of fences in your life. Fences aren't legalism. They're why unwitting children don't wander into your pool and drown. Fences guard us from dangerous situations, situations we may not even be alert to. 
Well, you know, a real Christian man wouldn't need any help with his, his internet looking. I mean, why should his wife look at his? Or why should he use a certain program? Or why should he have a brother for accountability? <sighs> really? Are you that unaware of the devil's schemes? Are you really by yourself strong enough? Do you dare to pray, keep me not from temptation, but I'll walk in the way of temptation? Fences are not legalism. Fences are wisdom. But the part we're concentrating on today in this regard is, of course, prayer. You need to pray this, brothers and sisters. It's one of the reasons I encourage you to pray this prayer every day. Not, again, by way of some, you know, I'll be super holy if I pray this, or, yeah, you will make the pastor happy, and that's not a bad motive. But for your own good to learn the basics of prayer and to pray some things like this that maybe you've never prayed before or you rarely pray, you need to pray this prayer every day. I suspect we would sin less if we prayed it with meaning and kept it in our mind, wouldn't we? One of the leaders of Sweden back in the Reformation was a man named Gustavus Adolphus. That's a great name, huh? I mean, you just imagine the size of his sword. He said this, to pray is almost to conquer. I love the quote. To pray is almost to conquer. In other words, if you actually care enough to avoid temptation, to pray to God regularly about it, your battle's half won. The truth is, we aren't kept from temptation because we don't ask sometimes. Question four, is God in control of the temptations and the tempters that come to us? Well, of course, always. Right? He controls all things. This even extends to the evil deeds of men and angels. Now, again, I recognize that for some of you, that's, that's a, like, Pastor, I, that doesn't seem right. I, I don't know how to deal with that in my head. You don't have to deal with it in your head. You don't have to answer it. You just have to believe your Bible, right? What's the greatest sin ever committed, perhaps, in the history of the world? You can make a case that it was Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross. And yet, yet, that greatest sin... Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Peter says this, Jesus was handed over to you by God's set purpose. If there was ever a wickedness that wasn't ordained by God, it would have been this one. But this one was ordained by God. By the set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death. God's not responsible for their death, for his death. He's not guilty of crucifying an innocent man. These men are. But God surely ordained it. It says it right there. And of course, in his great power and wisdom, because he had a different goal, a righteous goal in mind in that action, he overruled men's wickedness to bring salvation to his people. He wasn't surprised. He wasn't overcome by this sudden development. He ordained it for good and pure purposes, and he worked good from it. Job's another sound example of this truth, right? What, what does Satan have to do, this accuser, this tempter? Well, he has to come and ask God's permission to test Job through an almost 
unimaginably difficult trial. So God controls the degree and the timing of the devil's assault. And this doctrine is why the teaching of 1 Corinthians 10.31 should be such a comfort to us. Because God controls the situations of every temptation and every tempter. And so he can promise us that we will not be tempted beyond what we are able. Be assured, he is working these things for his children's good, even though our enemies, those three enemies, have different goals. Well, quickly now, questions five and six. May we pray against being tempted. <laughs> may we pray again. Not only may we, we must. We, we must obey Christ's example and his command to us here, and, and we, have to, we have to pray this. It's plain in this sixth petition. We see it illustrated in Christ's exhortation to Peter and the apostles in Luke 22, verses 40 and 46. Knowing their weakness, knowing our proneness to sin, temptation would come, in this case, to Peter, and he was going to be overcome temporarily. And he needed to pray and stay alert. And of course, he didn't. What is most evident in this history is Peter's and therefore our need and duty to pray against temptation. You know, if all you ever do is ask for forgiveness after the fact, but you never pray and ask for help against it, you're not fighting your sin. You're just excusing it. You're using God as a, as a cleanup machine. He's just your janitor. Now you have to ask for help before and after. We pray the first part of this prayer, lead us not into temptation because we're weak and we don't trust ourselves. And we pray the second part, because if we're brought into temptation, only God has the power to deliver us. And, and we want that power. Right? So our final question, what grace do we pray for if temptation comes? Well, we're praying for supporting and delivering grace. Supporting and delivering grace. Persevering grace. Patience. The grace to resist, the grace to conquer temptations, the grace to run away from them. Sometimes you don't stand and fight, sometimes you just run away. That's right and biblical. You pray for the grace to remain standing. It's a little bit like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, right? When Apollyon finally leaves, he's, he's kind of up on one knee and he's, he's tottering over it. But he's standing. He's there. He's alive. In other words, he's one. He's bloodied, but he's one. And the deceiver leaves. John 15.5 says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We can't bear the fruit of righteousness if we're detached from the true vine. We need his grace to resist the devil and what is more, to conquer him. And we are promised that we can crush him under our feet. Romans 16, 20. 
We need Christ's grace to find the way of escape and remain standing, 1 Corinthians 10.31. And again, we don't do this of ourselves. And so we pray with Paul in Ephesians 3.16 that God would strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being that we would not be overcome by evil. We pray that God would keep us back from willful sins, Psalm 19.13, and make his grace sufficient for us, perfecting his strength in our weakness, 2 Corinthians 12. So, brothers and sisters, let me end by quoting to you 1 Peter 5, 8 to 11. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.